Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, Paul Black speaks to Ryan Batchelor. Paul is a popular past guest on Capital Allocators and the co-CEO of WCM Investment Management. Ryan is the co-founder and portfolio manager at Clifford Capital Partners, a $320 million value manager based in Alpine, Utah. 
Clifford employs a blend of core and deep value holdings selected through bottom-up research into sustainable wide-moat businesses for core holdings and out-of-favor stocks for deep value holdings. The overlap of interest in moats led WCM to take an equity stake in Clifford three years ago. We'll start with my chat with Paul about what led him to Ryan. I wanted to let you know that we're enrolling the first cohort of Capital Allocators University, a live online course that starts on September 21st. Rahul Mudgal and I put together a course to help train investment professionals on the skills they need to succeed at the most senior levels of their organizations, but that aren't typically taught in investment curriculum. We'll be joined by an all-star cast of past guests on the show to help you learn foundational skills like time management and public speaking, and value-added ones like decision-making and networking. Hop on the website and click University in the menu to learn more. Paul, great to see you, bud. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks a lot, Ted. So I want to ask you a couple questions about Ryan and Clifford Cap. And I guess first is, how did this relationship come about? You know, it started a long time ago with one of my partners, Mike Trigg, who worked with Ryan at Morningstar. I've always been a big fan of Morningstar analysts because we've actually plucked three of them out of there. And I always ask Mike, who's the next Mike Trigg or Sanjay Air or Mike Team? And one of the guys that he mentioned was Ryan. And the days that he worked at Morningstar, he had a very, very high opinion of Ryan. And I said, well, where is he? He said, well, he started his own firm, Clifford Capital. And I said, well, yeah, I guess that's going to be tough to pull him out of there, but maybe we can buy a part of him. And that started the discussion. And what was that process like? Pretty simple, like all of our processes are here at WCM. We met with them in person in our office, he and Wayne Pearson. And my telltale sign is I always want to invest with really good people, with decent people. I think it was Buffett that said, right, he's never done a good deal with a bad person. So I start there. Wayne and Ryan are just terrific people with with really similar outlooks on life as we have. When you talk to somebody long enough that's been in investing, if they love what they do, that comes out pretty quick. So to me, recipe for success and in investing in firms and people, do they love what they do? And are they a good, decent person that just wants to work hard, stay humble, and they're pretty smart? And if you get those characteristics together in, in a group, which I think we have with Clifford, and I think they have in their organization, we found that's worked out pretty well for us. So with all of the due diligence processes that you've been through on the other end at WCM, how would you compare your efforts when you're thinking about working with Ryan and Clifford Cap with all the other investors that have done work on WCM over the years? It's probably less than 2% of the work that most people do on <laughs> our firm. As I said, like them, passionate, good track record probably a high probability of success going forward. And then it really comes back to this, Ted. 20 years ago when we started WCM, Kurt and I at the time were begging people to come alongside us and help us. And it was very difficult to find anyone to do that. We were learning. We were trying to figure out the investment equation. We were trying to figure out how to build a firm. And I always said at that time, boy, you know, if we ever get in a position where we can actually invest in people and help people with their own firms, 
then that's something that we really want to do. It really is as simple as that. I wish I told you that we did this full analytics on their track record and looked at rolling three years and one year and and dug into the process. We didn't. And part of that's because Mike Trigg had a great relationship with Ryan for a lot of years. So he knew he was a good investor. And plus, Clifford also had a couple of really well-known investors invested in the firm, like them. It's probably going to work out pretty well. And then lastly, how do you think about the fit of Clifford Capital into WCM's ethos and investment strategies? It's very different. We're growth stock managers, run international and global portfolios. They're focused on the small cap value area. It's not an area that I love, but I will tell you that it's an area that in March of 2020, when the market sold off really hard, I decided, you know what, it's probably a good time to allocate some of my capital of value. So I made a pretty significant investment. Luckily, at the trough, I, of course, had no idea it was the trough and it could have troughed for the next few months. But I took a couple of cuts at them in March and then another one in April, and they've performed brilliantly from those bottoms. So it's a very different strategy, but it's a strategy that that you need. Smaller company, value companies obviously do different than large cap growth companies, which is the world we live in. So from my perspective, it was a great way for me to diversify, but also get a true stock picker that's actually working on a lot of active share and trying to add alpha. Great. Well, Paul, thanks for bringing Ryan into the fold and look forward to sharing this conversation. Thanks, Ted. Take care. Ryan, great to see you and great to be with you. Why don't you start by giving a little background on yourself and how you got into this business and why you love it so much? Thanks, Paul. Pleasure to be with you as always in the beautiful Laguna Beach. So my start, ironically, came as an accountant. So I was an accounting major in college and When most people hear the words accounting and auditing, they kind of glass over, don't get very excited. But KPMG was my first job out of college, and I absolutely loved accounting. I loved getting to know new businesses every few weeks. I tended to like the research part of that, learning what makes businesses tick, how they make their money. And audit work, you actually designed an audit program around that. What are the risks to these revenue streams? So I think that was what got me interested in investment research to begin with. Very energizing to get to know a different company, love figuring out how these companies worked, and also moving on to different companies all the time. So interestingly, it was actually an experience at KPMG that led to the start of Clifford Capital Partners. Auditing might be considered boring to some, but my experience is with anything but. In fact, I was directly involved in auditing a credit card company that was owned by an old retailer called Spiegel. You might be familiar with Spiegel. Mail order catalog. Yeah, catalog business based out of Chicago. They're best known for the catalog. They actually own the Eddie Bauer brand back then. So they had a little credit card company in the Portland area, and about a third, a little over a third of their sales came through their private label credit card business. This business was based in Portland. That was my largest client. I spent a lot of time working there. My first couple of years, I was one of the one of the staff members. And then on the beginning of my third year, I was the in charge of this audit. I was in charge of the audit work. I won't get into a ton of the specifics, but my team's audit work and the things I was looking at uncovered a few yellow flags with some of the things they were doing in their accounting. 
these yellow flags related to two things. Number one, their largest asset, which ironically required a lot of managerial assumptions. So room for error, if you will, or room for manipulation, possibly. The second one relates to their credit losses. As a credit card company, that's a big deal. So those two things are really the only things that mattered for this audit. There's a lot of other stuff you do as an auditor, but really it was this, this asset and their loan losses that really mattered. And there were some yellow flags there. And so as I dug deeper, those yellow flags turned more red until they got really red. And we knew we had hit a nerve when one day I, I was in the CEO's office and he not so politely asked me to get the bleepity bleep out of his office. And I was like, okay, we've hit the funny bone. Clearly there's something going on. So make a really long story short, after a lot of analysis, focusing on these few things, we identified some accounting oddities that ended up causing this bank to liquidate and Spiegel to go bankrupt. KPMG did not file an audit opinion based on the work that I was in charge of. I went way over budget on my audit hours, got a little pushback from that, obviously pushback from management. But we ended up not issuing an audit opinion, which I assume saved KPMG a ton of money in the end when their client went bankrupt. And Spiegel obviously eventually filed for bankruptcy. How does that relate to Clifford Capital? Wayne Pearson, who is a seasoned institutional investor and a mentor of mine, he was aware in big picture terms about this audit of mine and some of the issues and the drama that was unfolding. And I remember very vividly one night, Wayne had mentioned to me, you know, Ryan, it's very rare for someone who's just a couple years out of college to have the conviction and do the analysis that you did to basically take on management and say, hey, you guys aren't doing something right and stick to your convictions. I was flattered that he said that, but I was only trying to do the right thing. No big deal. But then something he said stood out to me big time. He said, Ryan, you have the right skill set and temperament to be a really good portfolio manager. He's an institutional investor. He'd seen a lot of portfolio managers. And that really stuck out to me. At the time, I loved stocks. It was the internet bubble after all, 99, 2000, 2001. I'd never really considered stock investing as a career, but Wayne's words stuck out. And so I started kicking around the idea of starting a firm with Wayne at the time. The two of us got our heads together and said, let's get some experience. Let's figure out investing and let's start a boutique investment shop someday. And so the next logical step for that was business school. So off I went to business school at BYU in Provo, Utah, the Marriott School of Management. Fantastic experience, but there was really only one thing that stood out there. I was selected to be part of the Silver Fund, which is a student-run portion of the BYU endowment. And while there, I developed a friendship with Brian Yachman. So the Yachman family, Brian is the son of Don Yachman. Great value investor, been around since the mid-70s, wonderful analyst. Brian was a great mentor to me. We had an absolute blast picking stocks our second year of business school. In fact, I don't remember a whole lot of anything else. It really added a ton of fuel to my passionate fire of stock investing. And during that second year, read dozens of investment books, studied the patterns of the best investors, Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham, Seth Klarman, Phil Fisher, nod to your growth side, Paul, Don Yachman, Sir John Templeton, Marty Whitman, David Dreeman, a lot of anything I could get my hands on. It was actually funny. My wife was pregnant at the time, and every now and then she'd crawl over the bed and I'd be hidden in a corner reading investment books or doing stock research, <laughs> and 
try not to wake her up. There's a lot of ways to skin the investment cat, but I latched onto the idea of buying stocks at a discount or a margin of safety when they're temporarily out of favor with the market. So you could call that approach a contrarian value approach if you want. There's a lot of ways to make money in stocks, but the idea of buying with a margin of safety immediately resonated. I look at you guys at WCM, margin of safety is probably found for you in widening competitive moats, tremendous cultures, which leads to better than expected growth rates. That's on the same spectrum of what I do, but we're looking for more of the type that are very out of favor and have fallen to a price where we believe we can earn excess returns. And so a lot of that philosophy and background came from that second year in business school. Brian Yachman helped provide the foundation that I read everything I could get my hands on. Loved it. A lot of what I learned during that time is sometimes investor behaviors are driven by emotions or herd behaviors, which can lead to opportunity if you're willing to move against the crowd. Sir John Templeton is my all-time favorite investor. I remember once he gave an example of if you're going to build a bridge, you'd be an absolute idiot not to take the advice of the 10 best bridge makers in the world. They know how to build bridges. These engineers know what they're doing. If you go to Wall Street and the 10 analysts tell you, you need to buy this stock. So absolute unanimity, more than likely you should not take their advice. The idea of being a contrarian makes a lot of sense. We think that there are times the market loses its mind, and if you do the right analysis and you have the right temperament to be a contrarian, you can make a lot of money. We think it's warmer in the crowd, but there's money to be made by being willing to step outside the crowd. So in addition to gravitating towards a contrarian approach, as I studied the investment philosophies and how the great ones did their investing, I really linked on to two different types of investments. One was the idea of buying wide moat businesses, companies with competitive advantages, sustainable competitive advantages. They earn high returns on capital for a long time. They tend to be worth more every year intrinsically. So they're compounding machines. I love that idea. And if you could buy them at a discount, all the better. Fits in with our more contrarian style. The second type of company is more of a traditional deep value stock company that's severely out of favor with the stock market and has fallen to an unrealistically low stock price. So these are often statistically inexpensive, trading at low valuation multiples, but that's not enough for what we do at Clifford Capital. A lot of academic studies that buying low valuation stocks is a fruitful exercise over the long term, but it's psychologically tough. It's hard to buy these companies. It's hard to be a contrarian when companies are hated. They aren't popular. And usually when a deep value stock's at its best buy point, it's been a laggard. No one gets real excited about bragging about this laggard. Hey, I'm really excited about Abercrombie and Fitch Day. It's been down 50% over the last year. It's just not the type of thing you're talking about at cocktail parties, especially when these companies are in the throes of their woes, if you will. But we think both types of investments, very intriguing to me personally, and they're both alpha-rich areas of the market. So we contemplated, and I was thinking a lot about how could we combine these two approaches for this investment firm that we want to start. The idea of a core value, what we call core values, wide moat businesses that are trading at a deep discount, and deep value. How could we combine those two approaches into one portfolio? And 
that leads me right into the last year of business school. I started developing a strategy that did combine these two approaches. So around that time, Wayne's uncle Clifford, and yes, that is the beginning of the firm name, Clifford passed away and left a small inheritance that I started managing for Wayne. And I combined these two approaches, high quality wide moat, core value businesses with opportunistic deep value stocks. So we actually started this back in 2000, the end of 2003 is when I first started managing that. So 17 and a half years later, here we are, and so far so good. So just jumping from business school, I knew I needed some practical experience. And I talked about in business school in 2003, when I was looking for a job, it was tough to find a job on the buy side. I've mentioned to many professors, BYU was not necessarily known as an investment program, but I was going to bloody my hands, bloody knuckles, knocking on doors, trying to find a job in the investment world. And thankfully, a perfect fit came with Morningstar. I know you're familiar with Morningstar. Yeah, absolutely. We've got some of our best talent out of Morningstar. Morningstar was a fantastic job. When I joined in 2004, they had been on a hiring spree. Elliot Spitzer had a had punished some of the Wall Street banks. There was a need for independent investment research, and they were hiring analysts. Their philosophy and my philosophy were a really, really good fit. It was there that I met Mike Trigg. And Mike was a super sharp analyst, loved spending time with him. As an aside, every Friday we had what we called Stock Junkie Fridays. I can't remember the exact name that we called that group, but a select group of analysts every Friday would have lunch and we'd pitch our favorite ideas. And Morningstar encouraged individual investing. So I continued to manage the Clifford money during my time at Morningstar and learned a ton. This is my first job in the investment world. Obviously had some chance to make some investment mistakes during that time, but great experience being around passionate stock people. Absolutely loved it. And the best part about Morningstar for me was learning a process around competitive advantage, around identifying wide moat businesses. And that's a big part of what we have at Clifford Capital Partners is identifying how companies have dug a moat, the source of that moat, and its sustainability over time. So the number one thing from Morningstar, my practical experience, was just that, learning how to dig into wide moat businesses. So in 2007, the first time Morningstar had actually done a pre-IPO analysis of a company was MasterCard. And I was pegged to cover MasterCard before there was any price on the stock. Morningstar usually had publicly available prices. So this was a first, building a valuation model around a company that hasn't traded yet. And I was one of only two analysts at the time of the IPO that actually had MasterCard as a buy. As hard as that is to imagine now, one of the best companies in the world. So because of that, CNBC and Bloomberg Television, was they were interested in my opinion. So I went on TV reluctantly, not my favorite thing in the world to do, to talk about MasterCard and why I believed it was a screaming buy at the time of its IPO, which is relatively rare for an IPO in my opinion. But MasterCard, great business. Bob Costamiris of Wells Capital Management happened to be watching one of those segments. A few days later, I get a call from him, and he said, Ryan, let's explore whether you'd like to come to the buy side at Wells Cap. That's a great call. It was a wonderful call. It wasn't a slam dunk. He was based in the Milwaukee area. I was in Chicago. My family and I, we were well-established, had 
children in school and some special programs that we didn't want to leave. But he found a way several months later through a man named Dick Weiss, who's a fantastic investor, opened up his office in Chicago so I could work remotely with Bob Costamiris' team. Small team. We managed small cap, mid cap, and large cap assets. But I was one of only two senior analysts on the team when I was hired. And essentially my job in 2007, I was brought in to cover financial services and also being a generalist, which fits to this day. In 2007, obviously an interesting time to join the buy side. Bob had identified that there were some excesses in the market, especially in financials, zero financials waiting for a value manager. That's unbelievable. Yeah, coming into 07. And then, of course, we know what happened after that. And my job was to pick through the rubble and find the best ideas I could in the financials and in some other areas of that. Wonderful experience. Bob, wonderful investor, especially a deep value investor. One of the things I learned and honed during my time at Wells Capital was the idea of having the odds severely in your favor before you make an investment in a deep value company. So oftentimes, I think deep value investors get in trouble of just buying cheap stocks. Stocks are often cheap for a reason. So Bob wanted to know, find some catalysts for these companies. What's going to cause them from going from deeply undervalued towards a fair value estimate within a reasonable time frame? And importantly, another aspect of his investing was a three to one reward to risk ratio, at least three times more potential upside towards a fair value estimate than potential downside, meaning how much could a stock drop? This is a little bit different, but essentially we came up with a draconian scenario of let's say things get worse stock remains out of favor, how much lower could it go from our buy price? As long as we saw three times more potential upside to a reasonable fair value than downside using that type of a draconian estimate, we felt really good about the odds being in our favor. So that's something I learned a ton from Bob. He was a great trader, great investor. And then in 2010, Wells was going through some transactions and it was a great time to start Clifford Capital Partners. I was the last remaining senior analyst on that team after the financial crisis. We actually did quite well. We exited the financial crisis as a five-star fund in our flagship mid-cap product, but it was time to start Clifford Capital. So in 2010, Wayne and I, we linked arms and jumped and started Clifford Capital Partners in April of 2010, started managing money in August of 2010. And here we are 11 years later, still kicking that's an amazing story. And starting a firm, a lot of people that love investing, but there are very few that have the gumption to start their own company. So has that been an easy transition? It's a journey, and we're thankful for all the lessons we've learned from this journey. Ultimately, why did I start my own firm? We firmly believe that managing money the way we do will help our investors over time a concentrated portfolio, 25 to 35 names in our stock portfolios, every name is going to make a difference. We have a margin of safety type of value philosophy. These aren't differentiators. These are just the nuts and bolts of how we do what we do. Bottom-up research, every name we have deep knowledge of, trying to find ideas that the market is temporarily discounting for a variety of reasons, but we have the ability to go in a very bottom-up focus. In a market that's increasingly top-down, we focus on individual stocks. 
the end result of that concentration, uh, bottom-up focus is a higher active share. Our all-cap is our flagship. It's been around for about 11 years now. Russell 3000 value is our benchmark. It's not a particularly a great benchmark. There really isn't one for an all-cap manager. We're aware of our benchmark, but we're not driven by benchmarks. Those are the nuts and bolts, but I'll tell you what I think actually differentiates us. There's a few things. We've identified five things that we believe are our differentiators, our edge, if you will. The first is a blend of core value and deep value. So wide moat, high quality, competitively advantaged businesses, and then deep value opportunistic investments. So the core value side is the majority of our portfolio, 50 to 75%. Deep value is just based on opportunities. We think of these, and they're very different types of return streams, but they're both alpha-rich areas of the market, in our opinion, when you can buy them at a discount. Using an analogy, I'm a lifelong Phoenix Suns fan. I grew up in the Phoenix area. One of the reasons they're a good team this year is they have a great defense. They have a wonderful offense, but offense isn't always there. There's some nights your offense just isn't going to be clicking. The defense keeps them in the game. So when I look at our core value, deep value split, deep value is our offense. The reason we buy a deep value stock is we see a tremendous bargain. Our highest return stream since inception and looking forward, we would expect to be from the deep value sleeve. It's been that way in the past. We expect it to be that way in the future. That's the only reason we would buy a deep value stock is we see tremendous upside versus limited downside. But the offense isn't always there. So the core value keeps us in the game. You can think 2020 was a great microcosm of this. When the market rolled over hard during the beginning stage of the pandemic, our core value sleeve held up. It kept us in the game. And then we found some tremendous bargains on the deep value side. And that's the second competitive edge, if you will, or differentiator of our strategy is when the opportunities arise, we have the ability to overweight the deep value sleeve of our portfolio. So we have a mix. We think the mix is relatively unique. Most managers focus on one or the other, either wide moat or deep value. It's pretty rare to see the combo, but we have the ability to purposefully increase that deep value sleeve weighting when it makes sense to do that from a stock-by-stock basis. We've actually done an analysis of this, and over the first 11 years, almost 11 years of our all-cap strategy, it's added an incremental 50 percentage points to the total return, the ability to opportunistically overweight that deep value sleeve. And then the third point is key thesis points. For every individual stock that we research, the entire aim of our bottom-up research is to identify fundamental catalysts, long-term catalysts that will improve the prospects of the businesses we invest in. This is really important because finding cheap stocks, a computer can do. It's very easy to see statistically inexpensive companies, and that's not enough in our opinion. We're looking for companies that have key catalysts that will propel their futures over and above what the market expects. I think that's a great point because one of the arguments I make on why value has struggled over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years is that computers can really arbitrage away a lot of your advantages if all you're looking at are the numbers. So you've got to look at something very different because the numbers can be arbitraged away. There's nothing special about that. And that's one of the 
the lessons I think that I've learned over the last 30 years is the competitive advantage of just crunching numbers doesn't exist anymore. Maybe 30 or 40 years ago it did, but not today. So that idea of looking around catalysts for change, I think, which is a more artsy subjective side is I think exciting. And one of the reasons you add so much excess return. I couldn't agree more, Paul. One of the things we learned about active management, we actually, as I think about it, I view the computer as one of our biggest competitors. One thing a computer's not very good at is identifying which opportunity is better than another, which catalysts are more important than another. Kind of going back to my KPMG experience, I think a core competitive advantage of Clifford Capital of my personal investment style is identifying those things that really matter the most. It's usually only a handful of things that make the difference between a great investment and a so-so investment. The ability to identify those, focus on those, helps us ignore the noise in the marketplace and focus on each company at what they can actually control. They can improve their fundamentals. They can improve their financial statements. They can improve their balance sheets, which leads to better stock price performance. We think that's absolutely, absolutely critical to our process in a high conviction way. And the other thing a computer can't do is tell me how much of my uh, portfolio should be in any individual opportunity. When does it make sense to overweight or underweight a stock? So we think that those three things are kind of the process-related things that we believe are a competitive edge. And then there's two others that we believe relate more to our temperament as a firm and as a portfolio manager, is one, being contrarian. It's hard to be a contrarian. It's one thing, like I mentioned, it's warmer in the herd. And in particular, when things go wrong and you're one of many in a herd, you shrug your shoulders, oh, shucks, things went bad, but at least I'm in good company. When you're a contrarian and things go wrong, you look like an idiot. And that's an occupational hazard that a contrarian has to live with. Maybe it's something in my personality type that I'm okay looking dumb occasionally, but that psychological difficulty is why we think value investing has persisted, why it's been a persistent way to generate alpha over the long term. So maybe computers are a threat there too because they don't have feelings. But as long <laughs> as humans are involved in investing, we think there's an edge to being contrarian. And the second point relating to temperament is patience. Even in my investment time frame, I've been doing this about 20 years now, the time horizon of the typical investor has gotten shorter and shorter. We literally heard a sell side or a trader, I can't remember at this point, who said, oh yeah, this investor, they're a very long-term investor. They have about a one-year holding period on average. And that's true. In today's environment, we think a one-year holding period is long. We're looking three to five years into the future, even for our deep value companies. And these are opportunistic. We sell them when they reach fair value and we're indifferent. It may happen in six months, may happen in three to four years. Either way, we think we can earn a good return. But our turnover historically has been quite low, three to five year investment time frame, and about 30% average turnover, even a little bit lower than that for the first decade plus. Yeah, those are the differentiators. And we think that it's a great formula for generating alpha over the long term. That's terrific background, and you actually touched a lot on your investment philosophy. Maybe talk about a couple of ideas. I noticed that in your portfolio, you at one time owned GameStop. Yeah, so I'll cut to the end first that we sold GameStop in December 
of 2020. So prior to the excitement with the Reddit army, my children have been ribbing me ever since. In fact, <laughs> you know, come January, they were, they're like, Dad, didn't you own GameStop? And I was like, yeah, I sold it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually a really good example of our investment process. And because you asked specifically about GameStop, I'll talk about our deep value process. So the deep value side, again, very opportunistic. We are constantly scouring the market for areas that are out of favor. One of the ways we look at this is to look at areas that are extremely in favor. So for instance, Amazon.com has had a clear influence on retail across the world, really, but across the country, big time. Brick and mortar retailers under severe pressure because of online presence, not just from people moving online, but retailers having to invest in online capabilities, which has hurt their profitability. Several have struggled mightily. Several have gone under. Others have adapted quite well. But anything Amazon.com touches has led to some investment opportunity for us in various areas. I mean, I can think of examples like Fast and all fasteners. They make literal nuts and bolts. Great little business. Historically great company. Amazon's actually a customer as well as a competitor of Fast and All. We owned it for a while, made some good money in it when the Amazon influence was at its peak. But GameStop is one of these examples of a company where we had a different view than the overall market. So our research, a couple of key thesis points we had identified through our research. Number one, and most importantly, the majority of their store leases were very short-term in nature and zero cost exit. So at the time we initiated our position in GameStop, we believed that about 20 to 25% of their stores could be shut down and it would be cash flow positive to the overall company and it would cost them nothing. That was a really important key thesis point. Management had expressed the desire to do this, even though these were profitable businesses. The handwriting was on the wall. These businesses were going to start to lose money and they had too many stores. So they were going to start shutting them down. That was a big positive in our opinion. The second key thesis point was the console cycle. So Sony and Nintendo had pre-announced, hey, we're coming out with new gaming consoles two years from now. Normally they mention this with about six months to go for obvious reasons. If you're a gamer, you're not going to go buy the old PlayStation if there's a new one coming out in the next two years. So it was a particularly steep gaming cycle for GameStop, this last cycle that ended just in 2019, 2020. So we believe this was a cyclical downturn for GameStop. And yes, there are secular pressures, but the valuation, the cash flows, the balance sheet were all excellent. And these two catalysts, the gaming cycle coming up in a couple of years and shutting down their stores were both enough, in our opinion, to move the company from single digit stock price to mid-teens to $20 a share, which is what we believe was a conservative fair value of the company. So it's a great example. We were buying it when it was dirt cheap, trading very out of favor. Almost nobody liked the stock. We saw catalysts on the horizon. Those catalysts worked. We sold the stock before the Reddit army got hold of it. We think that actually shows our discipline it's funny, we joke around a lot about the money we left on the table, but we would never have participated in the speculative excess that's happened around GameStop. And in fact, the way we look at any deep value and in GameStop in particular, when we were buying it, almost everything had to go wrong to lose money in GameStop. 
that's a lot different than today where almost everything will have to go right to make money. Sounds subtle, but there's a huge difference there. And that's the philosophy of our deep value. We've identified catalysts. We've identified a really inexpensive company. And almost everything would have to go wrong for us to lose money. That's the philosophy around that. So GameStop was a great example of our deep value process in action. I think you're being too modest. Thanks, Paul. (laughs) One of the other things I'll mention just in our deep value process, just to explain a little more, it, it tends to be the harder to explain how we find ideas in deep value because there's so many ways we can find an undervalued company. It could be a factor that the market's focused on or a theme. In 2017, for example, when Amazon.com's influence was at its peak, a death of the mall ETF came out. And some of the retailers we followed fell into that ETF. The ETF was shorting these retail stocks. And again, herd behavior moving towards them. Great example, Abercrombie & Fitch in 2017 was trading at such a low price. It was in the death of the mall ETF. Their results had been struggling for years. But as we dug deeper, three consecutive quarterly earnings results leading into 2017, company missed expectations and the stock went down more than 25% each time and traded more than a third of its shares outstanding each time. When we see that type of behavior, which is not normal, it's pretty likely investors are acting on something other than analysis. As we dug into Abercrombie, we noticed, similar to GameStop, they had been shutting down their stores, especially their core Abercrombie and Fitch stores. They had quietly shut down 25% of those stores. Hollister, their other brand, which is their larger brand, was doing very well. And they had quietly also built up an e-commerce presence. 25% of their sales were through e-commerce As we looked at that company, we believed that the inflection point where the company had been declining in revenue, e-commerce sales would overtake the decline in brick and mortar sales within 18 to 24 months. That's a big deal. The company would begin growing again. And then the nerd in me, because I'm an accountant, I saw the balance sheet was very strong, net cash, no debt to worry about. But something that really stood out was their free cash flow was significantly higher than their earnings. And when we looked at the reasons for that, as an accountant, I got really excited. I got a little giddy the day I found that because I realized that that could be reversed within the next couple of years. So earnings would grow faster than free cash flow, and free cash flow is very solid. So again, a couple of catalysts. And then the valuation. Again, because of Amazon.com's influence on the brick-and-mortar retailers, Abercrombie & Fitch was trading, in our opinion, well below what even Hollister was worth. So we valued the company and said, in rough terms, business is trading at half of what Hollister is worth. And in the worst case scenario we could come up with, how much lower could the stock go? We applied a price to sales multiple of the lowest going concern retailers in the market to Hollister alone, ignoring Abercrombie & Fitch, the namesake brand and thought that the stock could only drop maybe about 20% more. So more than 100% upside versus 20% downside gives us a 5 to 1 reward to risk ratio, which highlights how we think about the world. Great balance sheet, key thesis points, very out of favor. At that point, really, it came down to, number one, do the key thesis points work? Will they continue to work? And do you have the guts to buy when everyone else is selling the stock? 
That's our deep value process in action. So I talked a lot about deep value. The core value side is, again, the larger part of our portfolios, 50 to 75%. We have pre-identified a list of what we want to own. About 135 companies for our all-cap strategy, about 100 small caps that we believe are the best companies that trade in the U.S. stock market. Competitively advantaged businesses, we have a proprietary process to get a company onto that list. And when a company on our core value watch lists falls to a price that we believe is attractive, we review all of our assumptions, ensure that the company's competitive advantages are still intact, and then we can add a company to the portfolio. So a little different than the deep value side, we already know what we want to own on the core value side. That list is fairly static. We're always looking for new great companies but they don't grow on trees. So maybe a handful will be added or subtracted from that list at any given time. But that core value list, that's where we select 50 to 75% of our portfolios from. And again, in a contrarian way. So you can think as an example, American Express, when they lost the Costco account. Several years ago, people were worried maybe Amex is losing its competitive edge. Its brand power is not strong enough to keep Costco we had a differentiating viewpoint of Amex. We believed it was a business decision out of strength. Costco had grown, obviously could demand better terms, and Amex said, we won't play with those terms. They walked away from the business. Amex has a fantastic business model. They keep all the economics of their cards, which is rare, and also inflation protection, which is a big deal in today's environment. wasn't a big deal when we purchased it. But we were getting inflation protection for free because essentially American Express's revenue, they get a percentage of every charge. So if those charges go up 20%, Amex's revenue goes up 20%. Natural inflation hedge. Great business. And ultimately, our number one key thesis point, we believe the Costco loss would unlock a lot of capital that they could use to repurchase their shares. What that means, EPS grows faster than expected or declines less than expected. And it was a very temporary hit and a great time to be purchasing a business. So that's a good example of a core value. Core value and deep value, again, we would consider 30% weighting and deep value to be normal. Anything over 30%, we'd call an overweight. Anything under 30, obviously a, an underweight, simply based on opportunity. And I'll tell you, Paul, that in the last year and a half or so, We've been overweight the deep value sleeve. We found some tremendous bargains, especially most deep value companies tend to be smaller capitalization. There are large cap deep value opportunities, but those have been increasingly rare in today's environment. So we're as small as we've ever been in our all cap. Our small cap strategy today is extremely attractive in our opinion, and we're finding a lot of great ideas in the small cap space. So, you know, one of the reasons that we took an equity stake in Clifford is we saw a culture at Clifford that was very similar to the culture we have at WCM, which we put as our main competitive advantage. And that culture is one that first and foremost cares about its people. So maybe talk a little bit about your culture at Clifford, what your core values are and what you believe in terms of a structure and organization and how that you think will dovetail into better results for the client. Well, I appreciate that, Paul. I know when Wayne and I first visited your offices here in Laguna, afterwards, we, we were both kind of breathless when we left. We were filled with all kinds of gratitude and energy because the culture was tangible. It was really impressive. And 
going back to why start your own business. I had a great job at Wells Cap. Frankly, it was a great job. Enjoyed it, loved it, loved stock picking. Why start our own business? And a lot of the reason is culture. We could build our own firm based on our own principles, our own values, and manage money the way we believe will ultimately help our clients the most. Probably the best way to answer this question is my all-time favorite investor is Sir John Templeton, both because of his investment acumen and because of the type of individual he was. Phenomenal man. Just a great man who knew there was more to the world than just investing. A close second is Seth Klarman. A little less well-known, phenomenal hedge fund manager. Since the mid-80s, at one point, he was compounding net of fees over 30% or something like 25% annually for 20-plus years. When you compound at that high of a rate as a hedge fund, you're doing something right. And uh, Wayne happened to be at an investment conference and sat next to Seth Klarman at dinner one night and mentioned, hey, Mr. Klarman, Ryan would love to talk to you. Would you be willing to talk to Ryan for a little while? And this is like my chance to talk to an investing legend, right? One of, one of the people I've really been excited to read about and follow for decades. And Seth, his assistant called and said, Mr. Klarman's going to give you 10 minutes, Ryan, at X time. Please call in at X time, and you've got 10 minutes. And by the way, it went about 9 minutes and 59 seconds. <laughs> it was exactly 10 minutes. That is unbelievable. Yeah, Seth Klarman, he's a fairly private individual. You won't see him in the news very often. He did write a book, Margin of Safety, which retails for thousands on eBay if you try to find a copy. Very much a sage, wonderful individual. The entire 9 minutes and 59 seconds, I talked about culture. I said how did you create a culture that transcends what you personally do, Seth Klarman? How could you, clearly he has some investment skill to do what he's done, but that's not enough. And at Clifford Capital, we recognize that Ryan Batchelor, yes, I'm the head portfolio manager. I'm responsible for the track record, but over the long term, it needs to be more. We need to build a firm that has the right culture, the right temperament, the right skill set to continue doing what we're doing for a really long time. And I spent all my time with Seth Klarman talking about that, and it's a purposeful focus for us, as it is for WC. What did Seth say to you? The thing that stuck out the most is camaraderie. At the time, Moneyball was a new movie, obviously a very popular book that I'm sure we've all read, but he had booked out an entire theater for his firm to go watch Moneyball as a team. He mentioned to make things not so serious all the time. Managing money is a stressful job, as we can all attest. Sometimes the market's moving against you. That's not fun in the short term. But managing money should be fun. Learning about companies, what makes them tick, learning about moats, finding these businesses that are deeply undervalued and hated by the stock market, sticking your neck out. That's all exciting. It's fun. It's stuff that we love to do. And Seth Klarman's advice was... Don't forget to have fun while you're doing this. It's a very serious job, but don't forget to have fun. And that really stuck out. For us, Rick Hicks came out. Your chief culture officer came out to our firm. And we determined that the number one principle surrounding Clifford Capital is what we call the freedom to succeed. We want individuals at our company to be working as much as they can in their area of genius. I'm borrowing a term from Jim Ware of the Focus Consulting Group. If you're working in an area 
where you have an edge, you're a genius, the things that give you the most passion, you're a happy worker. You love coming to work every day because it's what gets you going. You get in the flow. I can tell you there's many days I look down, it's three o'clock and I haven't eaten lunch because I'm excited about something I'm researching. That's when I'm in my area of genius. And that's what we strive to do at Clifford Capital. We're a small boutique, but we're striving to find everyone's genius and then giving them the freedom to work in that area of genius. And we do think it will be a competitive advantage for a long time as we maintain that culture. And we are very, very purposeful about maintaining the culture. In fact, we're looking to hire analysts as we speak and cultural fit and the right temperament matter more than the skill set. The skill set, that's playing stakes, but the temperament and having the right cultural fit is everything at Clifford Capital Partners. And small teams win. The evidence is overwhelming that small teams win. Good, healthy, small teams with a couple of passionate investors always win the investment game. If it was otherwise, then all the big shops with all the analysts all over the world would have the best performance, but you don't see correlation. I almost think you see an inverse correlation between number of analysts in a firm and performance. So again, you think about the great investors that you mentioned and you've mentioned throughout the podcast, they're all small teams. And so again, I think it's a terrific story and a consistent story. Why don't we wrap up here with a few personal questions? These are my favorites always, because I love to know more about somebody behind the investment process and philosophy. And I'm going to ask you a couple. What is the biggest mistake you made and what'd you learn from it? I'm going to go back to the Morningstar. I kind of alluded to this, talking about my Morningstar experience. As a young analyst, first job out of business school, made a lot of friends at Morningstar. I was very passionate but inexperienced in stock picking. There was a small bank in Puerto Rico that actually had an accounting issue that was very similar to the accounting issue that I talked about, about Spiegel. So I believed I had some specialized expertise in this company and thought I had found a bargain stock. So publicly and privately, I was saying this is a great buy. And most of my friends at Morningstar were buying this for their personal accounts. Because of your recommendation? Because of my recommendation. Yeah. Apparently, I have some persuasive ability in those meetings. Turns out there were some management improprieties. There were some aspects of this asset that I had never seen before. The danger is not knowing what you don't know. As a young and experienced analyst, and the stock was not a good stock. A lot of people lost money in that. And I took that very, very hard, took it very personally. To this day, it's one of the more painful experiences to think about and talk about. So what did I learn from it? Number one, when your key thesis points break, you move away from the stock. You don't dig in your hills. I didn't do very much of that, but a little. There was a little bit of pressure. Everyone's invested in this. It's a hit to my ego. It's a hit to my analytical abilities. Maybe my reputation will take a hit. I learned a lot from this because I think it's the same story in the markets. Don't be stubborn. I'm a high conviction value manager. And the line between conviction and stubbornness can be relatively thin. I guess conviction is when it goes right and stubbornness is when it goes wrong. (laughs) Exactly. But ultimately, when things go wrong, admit it and move on. Move on quickly. And number two, be careful with individual stock picks for your friends. (laughs) Yeah, don't talk about them. 
don't talk about them. What teaching from your parents most stayed with you? This is a great question. My mom actually passed away just a couple of years ago. She was the daughter of a dairy farmer, no indoor plumbing growing up. So she knew, and she was born in 1937, so a child of the Depression. She knew tough times. My dad was a successful businessman. We were relatively affluent growing up, but you would have never known it. My mother had a keen eye for bargains. So she taught me an eye for the bargain and independent thinking. Those two things came directly from my mother. And it actually isn't until the last five or so years that I've recognized that. But, Paul, there were times we would be in a grocery store and she would buy a horn of cheese that was moldy and she could cut off the mold on the cheddar cheese to get it 75% off retail price. She had an eye for the bargain. And I think that's stuck with me ever since. I love it. I love it. What lesson from your life have you learned that you wish you knew earlier? It actually relates to something I see in your culture at WCM. It's what I call an abundance mentality. And the best way to describe that is when you give freely, you end up receiving more. It's a paradox, a little bit counterintuitive. One of my favorite books is called The Go-Giver, and I can't remember for the life of me who wrote it at this point. It's a parable, basically talks about the idea of the more you give, the more you receive. And that's not why you give, but it's a natural consequence of being abundant. I've been surrounded throughout my life, people who live by this law of abundance and also the law of scarcity, which means I need to hoard what I have because it could go away. What I've found is the abundant life leads to abundance and the scarcity life leads to scarcity. I wish I had learned that earlier. I'll give you a perfect example. My best friend lives in rural Ohio. He is absolutely lives the abundance mentality. He recently bought a house. He called me just this last weekend and said, oh, you'll never believe what's happened. I bought this house and the owner mentioned that there's a natural gas well on the property. And by the way, there's a hundred barrel container it generates oil. You'll get 100 barrels of oil every three to four months that you can sell for somewhere between six to $10,000. So my friend, who's absolutely the most generous person I've ever met, he's going to have two-thirds to three-quarters of his mortgage paid for from this oil well that he had no idea existed when he bought the property. It's a great example. It's a law of attraction. I don't know why it works, but I do believe it works and I wish I'd learned it earlier in life. I love that. And I'm going to embrace that as well, because I think there's an awful lot of truth to living your life like that. You know, at our firm, we have two core values that you've mentioned in this podcast, fun and gratitude. And if you live your life with those in your mindset, it's a much happier way to live. And ultimately, it's about caring for people in a very genuine way. So, Anyway, thanks very much, Ryan. That was a terrific podcast. I learned a lot, and it was really fun to talk to you. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time.